Just like so many other federal agencies, the Air Force runs some paper-based forms that have to be filled out manually. Each one takes time. How much? That was a difficult question to answer until the Virginia Air National Guard's 192nd Wing saw a chance to do things differently. The Wing has been experimenting with AI, artificial intelligence, to take some of the repetitive tasks out of all that paperwork. Based on the early tests, the process could save the Air Force 156,000 man-hours per year just for one form. Chief Master Sergeant Joe Young has been leading the testing process for the 192nd. He spoke more about it with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. We spend entirely too much time on paperwork and filling out digital forms. Even though they're digital forms, it's still paperwork. We have a particularly difficult time uh, with the onboarding process. It can take upwards of, of three, up to four months for a person from when they, the first day they show up to for in processing, for them to get their uh, initial paycheck. In particular, for people who are coming from different organizations that are already in the military. So crossing over from active duty to Air National Guard or crossing uh, from another guard unit or crossing from a different branch to the Air National Guard. No, no particular office is, is the problem. It's the, the paperwork and the disparate databases that are involved and they don't necessarily talk quickly to one another. So we were trying to solve that problem initially we saw that we needed to also solve the problem of, of paperwork in general. We were filling out the same types of forms for ourselves and, and others in our organization on a daily basis, and the information we were filling out on these forms was very repetitive. Who is your supervisor? Who is your, what's your phone number? What's your supervisor's email address? Who, you know, what's your, your name, your last name, your social, everything that, that they need to know on all these forms is already known about us and it should be there's technology out there that should be pre-populating this information and then sending the information to the various offices so it was a multi-faceted uh, approach that we pitched uh, the idea was well received and uh, we were given feedback on how to request additional funding or initial funding for for this innovative idea and what they told us was we should go through the SBIR route and try to request a phase one is what they called it. And the company we, um, we selected is a company called Tackle AI. They're a small artificial intelligence company that specializes in extracting data from unstructured documents. Essentially, they could take all of our legacy hard copy forms or digital forms, ingest them into their AI and then create profiles for each individual in our organization. And so they would, they would create these profiles. And so the next time somebody would bring up a form, this profile information would be automatically populated to the fields in the form. All, all that to say, it started in uh, this, this entire HR smart weapon idea, started in an AFWorks workshop in Las Vegas. Uh, we've been working with the company Tackle AI. Tackle AI, every week, uh, we'd meet up for an hour. They would get closer to what our vision was, and their their task was to create a minimum viable product, kind of a, a proof of concept of what our vision was. And they uh, they built that over, over a phase two contract that was awarded by AFWorks.
I definitely want to come back to the results in just a minute, but to, to stick with the process a little bit more, because I think it's important for other people who might be considering going through an SBIR process, in order to successfully get yours into that phase one, how specific did you need to be in that pitch? I mean, was it really just a matter of articulating, here's where our pain points are, can somebody give us a technology solution, or did you need to be a little bit more specific and say, here's exactly what we want the tool to do? So great question. The actual process was uh, we, we created a, a storyboard of the typical process of onboarding a new employee. And we, we showed every step of the process and the different databases um, that are involved in each step of the process. And so we did that. We created a probably a 20-page a Word document uh, that this, uh, it answered some of the required questions that the SBIR project has. We told them in greater details, this is our problem. This is our dream or this is, this is our requirement. And this is, if, if this is implemented, this is how much money we believe or this is how much time that we believe that we can save. Um, and not only that, not just time, this is, these are the, the intangible results of increased morale reduced uh, burden of paperwork and and having giving commanders and airmen back back their time um, that they shouldn't be spending on these forms that, that that just take up too much time all right so let's talk let's talk a bit more about results here and and I realize you're still in testing mode here so way too early to talk about how and if this scales across the Air Force or even in any kind of operational setting but based on testing so far, what does it look like this is going to be able to do for you in terms of giving airmen back their time? Okay, so the the form we focused on for the initial testing was is what we call the form, the Air Force Form 2096. The thing about this form is it is a multi-use form, and it is used for multiple purposes. You have to use this form anytime you want to change your duty position, anytime you want to update your duty title, move from one office to another, anytime you want to move from one organization to another, upgrade uh, your skill level for a a subordinate. And it's a pretty complex form. So we wanted to focus on this form initially because we knew that if they could figure out how to automate this multifaceted form, then the other forms that we would need them to automate would be a piece of cake. So it took about 75 minutes from start to finish to process five 2096 forms using the legacy method. That's an average of experts and non-experts. Now using the HR smart weapon, it took 20 minutes to do the same functions. The striking part is that the experts and the non-experts, the gap was very slim on the time it took the experts and non-experts to do to complete the 2096 form using the HR smart weapon prototype. So you no longer have to be a expert to do this in a, in a quick uh, amount of time. So that's, a, that's roughly a 73% time savings for just that form. We, we saw that these forms, 12% of the time, they're returned because they're missing data or there's incorrect data on these forms. Because they're, they're complex forms now. So there's the reduction of that HR Smart Weapon ensures that the, the data is accurate. There's error checking that they're building into it. 
And so you know when you send it up, it's it's going to be accurate. We notice a zero percent error rate when using the HR Smart Weapon, and so we multiplied those results across the units that could benefit from it, which is all the Air Force units and all the Air National Guard units. And we will save, we had a rough calculation of saving 156,000 hours annually by automating just one form, one form. You think about all the forms we're going to be throwing at this HR smart weapon. And of course you need to do forms for any account that you need. You need a uh, a NIPRNET account, a CIPRNET account, various other things for, for in-processing, out-processing, retiring. Is, there's tons of forms involved in, in retirement. And so we haven't tested or, or started integrating those forms yet, but it helps you not only save time, but, but show you can, you can do analytics and show and see clearly if a certain office is getting backlogged, um, and, and things are getting held up at a, for, for much too long at, at one office, you can, the commander can make those decisions to shift resources to plus up that office with, with additional personnel so they can be more efficient. Or we can look into other ways of continually improving that process. Chief Master Sergeant Joe Young of the Virginia National Guard's 192nd Wing, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Hear more of the interview on this week's On DoD. It's at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has you know, been at the highest levels and all. But I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was 
I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities 
is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Verizon. With Verizon, you can now get a private 5G network, so you can do more than connect your business. You can make it even smarter. Now ports can know where every piece of cargo is and where it's going. Robots can predict breakdowns and order their own replacement parts. And retailers can get ahead of the fashion trend of the day with a new line tomorrow. With a Verizon private 5G network, you can get more agility and security, giving you more control of your business. We call this enterprise intelligence. From the network America relies on, Verizon. 5G ultra-wideband available in select areas. Pre-qualification required for private 5G network. Terms apply. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.